Hello, and welcome to the Stafford Beer Brain of the Firm Reading Group with General Intellect Unit. Uh, this time we are reading Chapter 17, Into Its Stride. Uh, so we are continuing uh, on with uh, the introduction that Beer gave us in Chapter 16. Uh, this is once the project is underway. Uh, and the chapter is broken up into different sections that describe uh, different efforts that were ongoing uh, at the same time. So it's not like, you know, uh, section one uh, happened before section two. They were actually kind of going on at the same time, but Beer just breaks them up into different sections so that uh, it's possible to understand what the different efforts were that were being undertaken. Um, okay, so uh, I think we'll go, we'll try to hit uh, the um, up until the end of the Checo program today, uh, maybe. Uh, so that, that's the first two sections of the chapter. Um, all right. So, uh, <clears throat> uh, Tom, can you mute yourself? There yeah, is mouse clicking coming through thing. on your end. Sorry. I thought I was already muted. Um, thanks. Awesome. Uh, okay. So, uh, I'll just... All right, so we'll, st we'll start from the start. Uh, from the start, as witnessed the quotation from the first letter from Fernando Flores, it had been the intention of his core group, in which I was immediately happy to count myself, to use cybernetics as the science of effective organization in all managerial affairs that could be influenced by that group and its supporting teams on a national scale at which cybernetic thinking becomes a necessity. The first letter had said, thus, it also, uh, thus also, from the start, uh, we were discussing wider issues than the regulation of the social economy. Flores himself moved, as was fairly predictable, into the government. First as Under Secretary of State for Economics, then as Minister of Economics, later as Minister of Finance, and finally as Secretary of the Cabinet. Meanwhile, the country was increasingly under threat, both from foreign opponents and from internal dissensions. These included not only the left-right politics of Chile as a nation, but also internal squabbles within the Unidad Popular uh, coalition itself. Thus, over the whole period of my two-year involvement, the exigencies of practical management changed the emphasis of what I personally was doing, and the tasks allocated to the growing number of teams depending from the core. Surely that is a proper use of management science. It should not develop its own ideology, but it should attest to one. If not, what is it doing there? Popular accounts have concentrated on the technological aspect, the socio-economic regulation adumbrated in Chapter 16. But they give a lopsided view of the affair and make it vulnerable to changes of technocracy, as shall be seen later. 
The reality was that I have no record nor recollection of any core group discussion which was not focused upon the needs of the people or the intellectual and perceptual development of themselves and their leaders. The potency of science and skills of technology were to be aligned in their service. Meanwhile, however, it is a fact that we launched the very definite plan of action at the end of the first 10 days, uh, which was depicted in the last chapter. It is also a fact that this plan was accomplished by March 1972 as intended. The ostensible exception to this was the creation of the operations room. What was achieved by the first plan was not the eventual result, see later, but simply a kind of informational headquarters, specifications for the room that was intended to create the environment for decision of Chapter 13 and to become the prototype physical basis of Chapter 16 for a new kind of management. Uh, were not even drawn up until the start uh, of, in March 1972. <clears throat> During that month, indeed, while I was in Chile, cybernetic deliberations were advanced by the core group on many fronts, and in particular, the People Project was launched. But Project CyberSyn received a new boost, because following the success of the first plan, we could now think in terms of putting together the basic tools thereby created in the cause of cybernetic synergy. Of course, they had been devised to this precise end and all needed much development, but it was enough to gain approval for the start. The final section of the Marsh Report, which will be alluded to under each topic, was about programming. It included a personal statement. The month following is a bad one for me. Rome, Georgia, Washington, Philadelphia, Zurich, St. Gohan, Vienna, Despite my sense of commitment to Chile, I was still working as a general consultant. The reaction to this was to be decisive for the next 18 months, if not forever in spirit, and perhaps those whom I let down at the time will at this late date accept the slight that was implied but not intended. President Allende wrote to me on, on the 28th of April 1972 saying that he considered it of prime importance to count on your presence in Chile in a more permanent way and in a more executive role. In May 1972, I was confirmed as scientific director of the work of which Fernando Flores was political director. It seems necessary to record this, for had it not been so, the momentum of the work at large could not have been sustained. There is a limit to what anyone can do in an advisory capacity unless he accepts responsibility too. This sentence, in my opinion, should be taken as the sinecure of System 4. Okay, uh, so uh, let's, let's talk about this. Uh, thoughts? Uh, Shane, go ahead. The, uh, the paragraph at the top of page 260 is very interesting, right? It's this, um, this notion that like, the proper use of management science should not develop its own ideology, but should attest to one. So he's, he's disavowing technocracy as techno-management for techno-management's sake. And it's not, but no, it, it, this was always for the sake of the people. We were using a tool for this ideological purpose, but that, that, that purpose itself was always in the foreground. And there was never, there was, it should never be the case that you're just doing, wielding the tool for the tool's sake. Um, it's really, it's really nice to see that there. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, let's go to uh, Jake and then Jeremy. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Shane. Like, 
Um, and I also liked how he said, like, uh, that it doesn't, you know, it shouldn't develop it as an ideology, but it should attest to one, that it's, it shouldn't be, like, pretending to be non-ideological, because that just serves the existing ideology of the ruling class, you know? Um, so I like that his, like, and it's sort of his been kind of his thing is saying throughout this whole book of just, like, you know, technology is not neutral, it's use and but it and it's a tool and it can be used but it needs to be like directed towards something or it like you know it's kind of a whole reason why he has this where he keeps talking about this sort of self-direction and conscious control sort of thing it's like technology needs to be consciously controlled you can't just sort of use it without knowing where you're going with it because then it's sort of not serving the actual things you want and then and then yeah that last little like couple sentences of like you can't just be advising so, like you can't just be advising the project of building socialism in this country. Like you have to actually be in it and accept responsibility for like the massive amount of work that it'll take. I think that, you know, is like, like if beer hadn't accepted that, you know, I don't think we'd have any of this, you know, like it wouldn't be the same kind of like throwing yourself into this project um, that he did or, you know, until, uh yeah i think that's really crucial um you know when you think about system four and he'll get into this later uh it's often there are sort of departments that are set up with a system four goal in mind but they are positioned in that kind of advisory role and uh that is according to beer not an effective way to set this up uh um, so, okay, so let's go to Jeremy and then to Matt. Oh, I just have a parenthetical about Fernando Flores. This whole section of the book is dedicated to Fernando Flores. And Flores ended up, I think, being imprisoned by Pinochet. And Beer put in a lot of work with Amnesty International and other groups to get Flores out and helped him get a gig afterwards, he ended up in Silicon Valley at the very start of the dot-com boom and had gone to business school and got very, very interested in how to make money with the internet. I have one of his books from that period of time where he's like, you know, it's very capitalist. It's very much like digital homesteading on the information highway is going to lead to you getting rich if you're smart. And he ended up going back to Chile. He was a parliamentarian and by recent times had worked for the political party that Pinochet's party became and really lost a lot of people who'd been his comrades in the 70s by being willing to work with the Chilean right wing. And... Uh, you know, what I asked about Flores when I met people at Metaforum, and people just sort of uncomfortably shrugged. He wasn't part of the work they were doing. He, I think he's still around in Chile, but he's like kind of this like pro-business, neoliberal technophile type. Right, yeah, he's very like in the sort of like wired mentality. Um, and... Uh, he he had a criticism of Cybersyn that was quoted in Cybernetic Revolutionaries, and I'm interested 
to go back and find uh, what exactly he said there uh, um, before we finish this chapter, because I would like to compare his criticism of why he argued that Cybersyn was useless um, versus what was actually done uh, in this capacity. Right. So he yeah. So I, I can't remember off the top of my head what it was and I didn't have time to look it up last night. But I definitely would like to visit that before we finish out this chapter, because, um, you know, he was he was a, a, a very instrumental member in the implementation of this. So his his words carry weight. But I do want to see if his words match what was actually done uh, and what was achieved. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, uh, back on the thing of of, of like uh, um, you know the, the the technocracy stuff. Yeah, it, it 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 is wild how that how that gets smuggled in, even though you know like it's not uh, yeah like like it's yeah you have to be optimizing for something. You know, like you know, I think it even goes to Gerdell, which you know, I mean, beer is is kind of fixated on that. You know, you have to have assumed something somewhere. Like you, like you can't just have like a, a, a you know like a perfect crystal of of, of a rational system that like you know ju- just a, a you know ju- ju- just just came out of nowhere. But like like somewhere in there has to be some kind of value system. Uh, and you know I I, I think it, it's easy, it's easy to get brushed aside because you know in capitalism which are often uh, um, you know hey you're optimizing for money or you know maybe just a slightly different version of money you know like uh, the uh, uh, you know the government's supposed to think in terms of GDP growth and uh, uh, you know which is maybe like like a um, you know a flip side of like having like a, a you know a numeraire or, or or whatever that you know you 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 kind of forget that that actually was a choice that that's what you're optimizing for. I think even like uh, um, you know doing like operations research work where you know like sometimes you're optimizing for different things you know you're optimizing for uh, uh, um, you know less uh, uh, less spillage from a uh, um, you know uh, from, from a process or uh, uh, reduced wait times I, I feel like that you know can can, can kind of even help like break out of like the uh, um, uh, you know the the, the capitalist uh, 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 fr- uh, frame of just you know of, of, of there is no alternative you know everything's just money. Right, and I, I do I do want to uh, talk about this a little bit more uh, when we get into um, some of the descriptions of the specific projects that were done because uh, there's there's uh, some mention of the way the system was set up and I'm I it's not it's not super specific so I would like to kind of like puzzle out what was what was being optimized uh, there. Um, okay, so let's let's move on to Cyberstride. Um, the Cyberstride program suite. The purpose of this suite was to monitor information flows as depicted in figure 27. Uh, 27 is the VSM, right? Yeah. Uh, at all levels of recursion to provide alerting signals to systems 3, 2, and 1 of any incipient change so that action could be taken to avert trouble before it occurred, and to provide the arousal filter to systems 4 and 5, as depicted in figure 32. This purpose is founded in the notion that the data informing all regulatory systems should be prospective and anticipatory rather than retrospective and a matter of historical record. Uh, and I found this quite interesting because I've been involved in this anticipatory governance group for 
some time now. Uh, and, you know, we're trying to promote this idea of anticipatory governance um, as an approach to governance. And it's like interesting to go back and see Beer uh, very strongly emphasizing that point of view. Um, you know, like, no, you, you don't you don't want to just think historically. You want to mainly be thinking about what is happening right now and what is going to happen. Um, by using only two-digit ratios as input to the suite, as specified in Chapter 11, a massive reduction in regulatory variety is attained, and it becomes worthwhile to invest heavily in a single program, this being contrary to EDP practice, in which ad hoc programs are usually written for each application. The statistical thinking behind the approach is rooted in the quality control practices that have been commonly used on the shop floor for 30 years. But since there has been no general movement towards their application in managerial contexts, it might seem strange to have based the regulation of an entire social economy on their use. Therefore, I record references to the genesis and development of such application at the end of this section. The program is first of all required to examine an arriving actual figure and to test it for acceptability as a legitimate member of its own statistical distribution. These, the so-called taxonomic, taxonomic distributions, were the initial samples drawn according to the uh, PERT of figure 42, with some 60 sampled values and there are simple statistical tests for assessing the probability of legitimate membership. Next, by looking up the appropriate values for capability and potentiality in the program suite's lexicon, the three indices are created. These are statistically normalized by a trigonometrical transformation, since distributions of ratios which have a limiting value of unity are notoriously skewed to the right. The original intention was to transform to the inverse sign, but methods were later found to choose the appropriate transformation for each time series. Then comes the statistical filtration, which detects incipient change. The techniques I had used in the past were clearly out of date, but my own PERT chart called for this program by March 1972, and it was already late November. The scientists and programmers at ECOM, the National Computing Center in Chile, were overloaded. Okay, so let's let's talk about this because it's, it's very uh, very detail heavy here, um, and uh, we should we should make sure we we know what we're looking at. Um, so uh, first of all, uh, let's talk about these two-digit ratios. Um, is this is he just referring to like no side of the ratio can have more than two digits, and this is done like he says in a massive reduction in variety, but. Is he just talking about, like, basically saving on memory here? Uh, wh what do you think's going on? No idea. Is this, the potenti is this the potentiality stuff he's on about before that you were talking about where you can have, like, um, measures that are normalized for every process so that you can just see which ones stick out? 
Yes, yes, that's that's what this this system was was covering. I'm just not sure why it's two digits, but eh, I, it was a was there two things? Was there potentiality and uh, there's like three things. Something. And there's three the things. One? It's uh, yeah. actuality, uh, capability, and potentiality oh. are the three three metrics. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yes, in, in, in terms of like computing, uh, 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 I mean, uh, they, they um, didn't like release. So, so uh, like like floating point stuff get actually has like its own like sub chip on on your computer, mm-hmm. and uh, that's the, the like the, the 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 mass market version of that, which was quite expensive at the time. Um, uh, uh, version of that came out in like the eighties. So I mean, like, uh, and since he wasn't even d- using like you know the most advanced computers of uh, of, of you know the, of 1973, like I mean, yeah, it totally makes sense that you know like yeah, you, you would really snip off um, uh, the, the the floating points because yeah, like uh, actual like 32 or 64 bit you know uh, floats would have been you know like uh, um, yeah, just very difficult. Right. So he's he's talking about two digit integers here. Um, okay, uh, Shane, go ahead. Or is is it is it that they're two digit they're two digit rational numbers where it's it's a single digit numerator and denominator and that's those are approximations of of floats now. Jeremy saying no. Okay. 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 Uh, Boast, go ahead. I actually just have a quick question because I want to uh, I want I'm wondering what the next sentence means. Like the the statistical thinking behind the approach is rooted in the quality control practices on the shop floor in the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, does that heavily inform why? Like, I don't know. My gut's saying that it's just like, yeah, we want these really simple ratios that kind of feel like a uh, generalized assessment as opposed to the hyper specific, you know, extra digits. But I might be wrong. I I think there's probably something to that. Uh, I think the other stuff that we see statistically speaking is like first uh cleaning up the data uh uh normalizing the data uh and then uh measuring um so those those seem to be like probably informed by beer's experience with shop floor work okay uh so yes, yeah, it's, it's a little unclear what he's referring to here, but uh, I think we generally get the idea. Um, so uh, the next part, um, so first you check to see if the data is an outlier, right? Like uh, test it for acceptability as a legitimate member of its own statistical distribution. Uh, you're, gonna cl- you're gonna screen the data, filter the data there. Um, uh, and then we have uh, uh, we have the uh, appropriate values for capability and potentiality in the program suite's lexicon, which are the values that would be basically fed in from the workers, uh, you know, developed at the the lower uh, levels of, of the system and and provided as like their assessment of what capability and potentiality would be. Um, which we covered in the in the section about uh, I believe uh, system two in the previous in the previous section, um, and then we have uh, the normalization, uh, which I think we also talked about previously. Uh, like we were like, why is it being done this way? And it was just oh, this worked better. Um, uh, 
when we uh, 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 asked uh, Raul about uh, uh, about the how they were doing it, um, and uh, then we have the the change filter, right? Uh, it d- detects incipient change. So this is the part that that is going to be revolutionized in the in the upcoming section is the detection of incipient change. Uh, Shane, go ahead. So, so what's going on here is that like, if 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 the if the numbers that are coming in are basically what was expected, or they're they're within a rounding error of what was expected, and they're they're on track or whatever, it's just yeah, grew gradually climbing up to the right. Nobody gives a shit. It's fine. We don't have to talk about it anymore. It's it's det- what they're filtering out. They're filtering out all of normality, and it's it's the it's the change. It's either the the sharp turn up or down, is the that's what would give you an alert signal. So there's nothing to report on if it's all going normally. Yes. Um, the, the the chain would actually stop at this point because the, the system would verify that everything's kind of on course and go yeah shrug who gives a shit it's fine and then uh, nobody else needs to know about it. Uh, you don't need to send an, an alert up the chain. Right. It's, uh, it's, it's algodonically oriented and, uh, we are going to, um, we are going to see in, uh, the upcoming part that, uh, this system was augmented through the use of Bayesian analysis, um, which was an innovation at the time. All right. So goes on, uh, accordingly, it was decided to subcontract this work to London if a contractor could be found to undertake such difficult research come programming in so short a time. Moreover, we needed a group who also understood the operational research features of the Cybersyn project, the nature of the modeling processes and techniques of data capture that were being developed in Chile. Uh, As a Briton, I knew whom I wanted. They were a group of consultants within the London branch of the international firm of Arthur Anderson and co. the arrangements were being made with an old friend, David Kay, uh, and uh, directing and with Alan Dunsmuir managing the job from day to day. Um, so uh, this was done under absurd time constraints, uh, he goes on to mention. Uh, so the important thing here uh, is that we have the development of... the temporary suite and the permanent suite. So the, the temporary suite for Cyberstride is going to be uh, fundamentally methodologically different from the permanent suite. It's not that the temporary suite will eventually be merged into the permanent suite. They actually cut so many corners with the temporary suite in order to have something up and running that like these were incompatible systems with each other. Uh, it was, a, it was really a crash program to get the temporary suite going. Uh, Shane, go ahead. It's, it's really incredible if they got any of this stuff done and like this, 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 this plan, like even, even coming out of like startup land and stuff, even this would seem insane to even the most insane, like fly by the seat of your pants programmers, right? Like, Oh, it's like because like the, the notion that you'd build a temporary suite and then throw it away and build a, build a good one that that could fly, but building both of them in parallel <laughs> is is a degree of um, of craziness that not many have the stomach for. Um, it's it's truly remarkable that they went, they went with this very audacious plan and it worked. 
Yes. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I think it also even makes a certain kind of sense just in terms of like, yeah, because uh, uh, you know, like they're not using the, these phrases, but uh, um, you know, the, 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 the phrase that Eden Medina keeps using is uh, socio-technical infrastructure. And if that's your goal, I mean, uh, um, like, why not in parallel, you know, just get um, uh, people who are going to use the system adjusted to like, well, yeah, the, the, this is sort of kind of like what it's going to be like. And then and then use that as sort of a minimum viable product in the sense of like, uh, you know, like uh, just sort of seeing like the stuff that's going to come up that you can't foresee ahead of time and just like, okay, so, so this is going to be what the workflow is like, you know, like, uh, are there any, you know, are, are there any little like, uh, uh, you know, they brought you the soup, but didn't bring you the spoon instances. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think they actually did kind of stumble on uh, the MVP thing that, though. Uh, yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, but, but I, I've seen that the, the, uh, people actually do that. We're, you know, we're like, um, you know, you make a mock-up first that like, uh, um, you know, isn't even really, you know, like the actual system isn't going to be using that same code base necessarily. But uh, um, yeah, you, you, you use that to just do like user testing. Right. What's, uh, what's, what's Google's uh, JavaScript framework again? What's that called? Angular. Angular. Right. They, they, they basically did this, right, where they had a version of Angular and then they threw out the whole thing and introduced one that was like fundamentally different. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, an yeah Angular yeah. JS. And yeah. Now, it, uh, now it's Angular and it's it's absolutely completely fucking different. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, the, so you know, this is uh, pre- <laughs> prefacing a... Uh, Prefacing a, an approach that would go on to infuriate programmers the world over. Uh, uh, okay, uh, Shane, uh, go ahead. But but crucially though, like at the, at the bottom of that um, excerpt that he's quoting, it's, it's that they weren't sequential. Like when we talk about this MVP thing and the like, even the Angular project, they're sequential. You have the shitty version, and then you learn your lesson. You you build the good version. They were doing both at the same time, mm-hmm. with the intention that they would partially deploy the temporary suite, and it would be barely enough to work, and and continue developing. But the the good version was developing in parallel. So that that's the really strange part of this is that they were learning the lessons in flight. It, it, it wasn't like oh well, the MVP thing is usually that we'll build a, a bad version of the product, and then we'll then we'll build a good one once we've learned right. our lessons. They were doing both in parallel, which is very, really brave. Really brave. They were. I wonder if this would be better off being adopted as a general thing, like because I think it's possible you might actually learn more and better and faster by doing that. Yeah, uh, and you do see this approach used in um, in games development, actually, uh, where they will develop a. not a prototype, but a but a minimum viable product as a separate project from the parallel developed uh, mature project. Uh, so, like you know, the the first game and then the sequel, but the sequel will actually be in development alongside the first game. Um, uh, Shane, go ahead. I mean, maybe an example from fairly recent times of that is um, development of like. Uh, like with the way From Software did the development of like Dark Souls Two in parallel with Bloodborne, mm-hmm. and they were they were clearly learning lessons from each other. And then <laughs> if you, Dark, you want to Dark talk Souls about 3. projects that were flying by the seat of their pants, yeah, <laughs> yeah. those two are really good examples. <laughs> but you have you have two like, and then they had what it was like Dark Souls Three was developed in parallel with some other one, and you can kind of see the way they were cross pollinating. 
and they have oh, overlapping yeah. uh, development timelines and release schedules. Uh-huh. Um, but there's sub- substantial chunks of time that they're sharing with the two teams in the same room or the same building, and um, you know, cross pollination between the two, even though they're logically sequential in a way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, okay, uh, so. Yeah, that's an interesting point uh, in terms of their development methodology. And I do appreciate the way in which the consultants were able to sort of specify, here are the contours of what a mature product would look like, and here are the contours of what a minimum viable product would look like, and just like understand a priori that these would need to be distinct things. That's, that's quite impressive. Um, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just wanted to make a comment on how, like, just goes to show how important different timescales are to, like, planning the deployment of technology and, like, the differences and constraints you'll have when that's, like, technology as deployed by the government uh, versus a company that is, like, a startup and through a company that's like well-established. Um, so probably the best example from like the government perspective in our modern times, of course, is like the Obamacare uh, mm-hmm. website rollout, right? Mm-hmm. Where they were given a couple of years to do it, um, but it was a disaster. And like, if they weren't able to quickly fix that, the whole thing probably would have collapsed in on itself given the political pressures. And like, I guess good for them for being able to uh, get it back up and running relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, there's just no room for error, right? In the political space, because things are happening fast and you're subject to like the daily news cycle in a way that it either better work or not. And like technology doesn't really always work that way. We know that it's hard. Um, different projects at different scales, like for example, running an entire country's economy through a simulation program um like it's that's a challenge it's amazing they got anything you know as everybody's saying in the the months that they were doing this um but you know it also goes to show like you know if you're a startup you can go on the down low and do work really hard for a couple years and try to get your mvp out there and usable um but then if you're a bigger company like google and whatever the, the javascript thing is like you can do that on the fly you can absorb it if it doesn't quite work um But, like, we just haven't really figured out an effective way, I think, holistically to, like, figure out what the appropriate timescales and room for, like, failure and development and fixing is necessary when you're actually trying to do ambitious things. Um, And unfortunately, in, like, this case, you're subject to uh, political pressures and can, you know, be overthrown by the CIA. Um, So, like, throwing that into the mix certainly isn't going to help the viability of sound technology development. Um, But I don't know, I mean, there's no good answer here, right? You know, you're gonna be subject to political or market pressures in one way or the other, and it really runs counter to the ability to clearly and smartly develop extensive technology in any meaningful sense over the long term, Um, which sucks. (laughs) But, you know, I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah, well, I think in some ways, if you compare this to the Obamacare project, um, like the 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 what are the, the insurance exchanges right and the the technical side of that like that was in a way an even more difficult project than than Cybersyn because it was dealing with first of all a 
uh, over-engineered and uh, over-complicated spec to work from. And then on top of that, it had to deal with all of the problems of federalism and the political interference that was involved with that. So, you know, I feel like with Cybersyn, they were at least able to get in a room together and come up with a, an, a plan that was not handed down to them by uh, politicians whose main interest was ensuring the survival of insurance companies. You know, there, there was at least some coherence to the, the, the original plan. Uh, uh, Tom and then Jake. Yeah, I think as well with the Obamacare, they probably had to integrate with like God knows how many different insurance uh, companies specs, which is uh, a lot, a, lot a, a huge amount of added complexity compared to CyberSyn, where you're just like rolling out your code to particular places. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Jake? Yeah, I just like in thinking about the sort of the sort of parallel development they were doing of like the proto, I don't know, prototypes the right word, but you know, the 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 first version, the beta version of Cyberstride, and then the the actual, well, maybe it was more like alpha and then beta version. But um, you know, it, I, it's also just like the fact that what they were doing has no like roadmap or no, not. I mean, they they built a roadmap, right? But like no precedence, you know, like with some startup, you know, I guess you, you could you could sort of make the argument that some startups are like, well, they're disrupting the whole industry and no one's ever done anything like this before. But at the end of the day, they're still operating under the same like basic assumptions that society has been operating under since capitalism has taken over. And they were trying to do something different in in Chile and and really with any like organizing thing. You know, it's like there's no there's no a guaranteed way to do what they were trying to do or really any, you know, organizing thing. It's like, you just kind of have to do it and refine it as you get feedback from it working, which is kind of the whole like cybernetic ethos. But like, uh, but I think that kind of also contributes to sort of why, well, maybe contributes to why they were more willing to kind of go for it without kind of having that, fully defined thing because really you're not going to have like there's no there's no um you can't plan out communism you can only build it and it's like they couldn't really you know you can you can you can plan all that you want but at the end of the day like because it's politics because it involves the real world and it involves like actual consequences and actors who you can't predict or control like you're just going to have to try things and then if it encounters some like roadblock, then figure it out. You know, it's like, uh, so, I, so I think that the way they did it was, was probably like, was the right way, you know, in terms of like, uh, of the available options, you know, especially considering the, the time crunch that they were under, whether they knew it or not, you know, uh, and um, yeah, like I, I just, I think that, yeah, I don't know. Stop there. Uh, so I think, yeah, it, it, it's impressive the way they were able to do this. Uh, it's also impressive the degree to which their experimentation was informed by theory. 
and by by practical experience, right? Like they did bring in people with expertise, like you know Stafford, uh, like tapped his old boys club for uh, for expertise, uh, his his OB network, and uh, uh, he had his own experience. The people in Chile were like very educated in this field, um, and. Uh, they had the VSM as a theoretical framework within which to experiment. Uh, so it, w- it was at least guided by theory. Um, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I think that's really crucial, right? That um, <clears throat> Yes, it's true that you can only really build this stuff, right? Like it's said, but it, it, this is quite different from the kind of like anarchist or communizer sort of like, ah, the, the true revolution can only exist in the moment or whatever. It's like, no, these are these are techniques like they're well understood like this is this is this isn't rocket science like it's you can you can understand how to do this sort of stuff and like you know it's um maybe a lot of this the appeal of this sort of account as well as the the way that like they came in with like a well-reasoned framework for how to do this and the rubber met the road and it basically fucking worked until the cia came and shot them and that's that's very different from the ah you know like yeah, the, the sort of um, the anarchist sort of way of thinking about that. They're like, oh, it's, it's all completely unknown and unknowable until uh, until it's encountered. There's quite a bit you can know about it before you get to the encounter. Much like that whole pre-scientific bridge building stuff. You don't yeah. have to build the bridge to find out if it's going to stand up. You can do it on paper first. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's neither the sort of like communizer, like, you know, it just 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 has to happen. Point of view, nor the sort of anarchist prefigurative point of view, because it's like no, they're actually doing the damn thing, right? It's it's not uh, a prefiguring a project; it is the mm-hmm. project. Yeah, um, gotcha. Sure. Uh, okay, well, uh, let's continue. Um, so, uh, this is what happened, uh, and again, I, I want to I want to clarify the actual language used in the book which is uh, the temporary suite and the permanent suite. Uh, those, are, those are the two terms. So we've been saying MVP and finished product, but it's temporary suite and permanent suite. This is what happened. The consultants started the work in London, and almost immediately I was confronted with an extraordinary decision. No sooner had we reached a conclusion on the precise mathematical techniques to be used in generating the statistical filter itself then I received a phone call late at night from Alan Dunsmere. Had I read the operational research quarterly for December 1971, and in particular, a paper by Harrison and Stevens called A Bayesian Approach to Short-Term Forecasting. Hardly so, given all that was happening. I stayed up all night with this paper, and the next day, and, and next day we determined to scrap the agreed mathematical approach in favor of theirs. It was a bold step. This comes from the previous quoted report of January 1972. Briefly, the method uses Bayesian probability theory to quantify a multi-state data generating process. The filter can automatically recognize changes in the stream of input indices and determine whether they represent transient errors, step functions, or changes in time trend and slope. The especially attractive cybernetic feature of the system is that the filter responds to the increasing uncertainty which surrounds change by increasing its own sensitivity whenever change is signaled. Forecasts, excuse me, forecasts are produced in terms of a joint 
parameter distribution, which is more robust than a single figure forecast. So um, I just wanted to pause here. Uh, can anyone clarify what a multi-state data generating process is? Like, I don't, I don't know what multi-state is referring to here. Not really sure. Yeah, Matt, go ahead. Uh, my, my, my guess would be that um, uh, um, so there are a lot of statistical techniques that um, uh, are about like um, so, 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 so so like imagine you know you're at a craps table and uh, um, you know the the uh, the croupier I think they're called mm -hmm. um, a, a hair die and uh, and a loaded die. And uh, um, so, you know, there's essentially two different states of the craps table. Um, uh, uh, one is generating die rolls from a loaded die. One is, uh, and, and the other state is uh, generating die rolls from from, uh, from a fair die. And uh, sometimes there are techniques for like, um, you know, um, based on uh, uh, you know the the, the rolls that you're seeing, you know, uh, inferring which state um, uh, uh, they came from. That might be it. I'm not sure. Uh, okay. I see. So that would aid in the classification of what the trend actually is. Um, okay. Okay, cool. Um, all right. So uh, the expectation is that this 321 regulator will discard all input. And again, this is referring to system 321, I believe. Uh will discard all input data that indicate performance as continuing within chance variation, variation around the standard indexical distribution, and that it will use significant data to produce forecasts of imminent change that will be made available immediately to the managers of the economy. These people will now be in a position to forestall events if they wish to, and if they know what action to take. At any rate, there is nothing retrospective or historical about the data collection system, which is wholly oriented to prediction. It is a primary aim to avoid creating a vast bureaucratic machine, and the true intention of the 321 regulator is simply to discard all the data once they have been wrung dry by this powerful online system. However, arrangements are being made for the time being to store data so that comparisons can be made with the data generator of the operative plan. So the operative plan will be mentioned later under product, Project Checo. Uh, so essentially they want this stuff to be in working memory, not long-term memory, but they do want to st store it long enough that it can be fed into system four for reference. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, that, that stuff's really cool, right? Like it's so against the grain of a lot of tech thinking now, which is like, oh, just gargantuan fucking MongoDB installations, like just stuffed with fucking information. Um, no, chuck it all away. Um, just keep it, keep it, keep barely enough stuff in cache to make the calculations work uh, and then dump it all. Also, it's cheaper to run. Um, I just I love that sentence a little bit earlier that um, the especially attractive cybernetic feature of the system is that the filter responds to the increasing uncertainty which surrounds change by increasing its own sensitivity whenever change is signaled. That's really cool, right? It's it's uh, it's it's alertness. It's this like um, it's like the way the brain has these like two modes, right? It's wandering, relaxed mode, and it's focused, attentive mode. And you you hear a rustle and leaves, and snap, you're into sensitive mode. But like, 
the filter detects that there is increasing uncertainty in the situation. Mm-hmm. And it responds not by clamping the butthole shut. It, is, it responds by increasing its own sensitivity. It becomes more sensitive to the more dynamic situation. And it, 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 that's, it's so fucking good, right? It's such a great thing that these, these cybernetic systems must do. They have to be alert and super sensitive when it's appropriate to do so. Because there's plenty of social and political systems that would respond to increasing uncertainty by just locking down and going into, into authoritarian mustache butthole mode, as Ezri as, uh, as would put it, um, which would be the total opposite of this, of this filter, right? Like the, the filter must become more dynamic and more sensitive and more subtle um, and in, in many ways softer. Like it has to let more information in. It has to become, it has to allow the, the information about the outside to flood into its senses. Precisely at that moment when it detects that it heard a crunching in the leaves, Oh shit! Is that a tiger? Fuck! I better go look. You know, um, it, it it's fucking great. It's it's what we we should really be taking our inspiration from, rather than like, oh, I I feel danger. Well, go to the one plan of action that we know, which is just massacre everything in sight. You know. Well, uh, I think we've we've developed the most elaborate uh, cybernetic analogy for anal sex that has uh, been, <laughs> been arrived at so far. But uh, you know, this is this is what we're doing here at the Emancipation Project. Uh, uh, okay, so Jake, go ahead. Yeah, I really like that um, that idea of like you know that. The, the filter between system one, two, and three, and system four, five, or I guess system four in this case, whatever, is, you know, the point of it is to like reduce the variety that it's actually getting there. And, you know, it's like when Beer talks about the sort of meta languages in sort of the first part of the book, it's like it's speaking in this meta language that says everything's fine, everything's fine, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. You don't actually need to know the actual statistical, like, these things that are going on until it detects that variety. And then it's starting to say, well, okay, let's let in more. Let's let in more of this, of the actual information so that it could be useful towards solving the problem. I think that's really interesting. And just, yeah, that, that analogy of like, of, uh, you know, you hear rustling in the, in the trees and it's like, oh, is it, is it a tiger going to eat me? That's when you need to like, okay, you got to listen more. Oh, well that actually, oh no, I can hear like some, you know, cow mooing. So it's, it's just a cow or something, whatever. I don't know. It's now just a little falling apart, but you know that kind of thing of like when things start to go wrong, that's when you need to be more aware of the actual differences rather than just kind of yeah, like you said, just like okay, cut off the variety here. Uh, we know every time in the past, just shooting the thing will prevent uh, any more um, uh, negative feedback. You know, we're not going to hear the rustling anymore. And so therefore we don't have to worry about it and we can move on with our lives. And it's like, it's fine if you're walking through the woods with a gun, you know, but it's not fine when you're running a country, you know, or trying to run even like an organization or like a firm, you know, it's like you're really reducing the actual, like your ability to model the world by just cutting off any variety that you, you can't deal with. And, I, don't know, I, I just yeah I really like that idea of of these flexible filter it's like the level of filtering is dependent on the filter uh, or is dependent on the feedback that the filter is receiving which uh, maybe that's the maybe there's a term for that but I can't forget the you know 
I don't know, but yeah, I quite like this. Okay, uh, uh, Shane. Yeah, and like to maybe to to stretch the metaphor to breaking point, like when you hear the the, the snapping of twigs, one of the solutions to that is to deafen yourself. Right, that like if if you and that this is part of the the weird psychology and the weird sort of squishy fucked up way that we cognize the world, right? That like we we receive we're we're obvi- we're sensitive to signals from the environment and for good reason because they're they're survival signals, um, but we can be maladapted to them. Like we can we can find that the signal itself is traumatic, um, or let's say you know for for a you know for a maybe a socialist like. It attempted a, at, a, at governance where we we, we detect uh, actual discontent amongst the proletariat. You know, like, did, did, was the Soviet Union any good at like, you know, acting on that discontent in a healthy way? No, it it, it deafened itself to the, the discontent rather than acting on it. Right. So, like, there are pathological responses to um, to these these um, stimulus, and a lot of those pathological responses have this character of essentially deafening oneself to the to the stimulus. And that's like, oh, I'm going to solve this problem by just never being aware of it again. Um, oh, the, the 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 factory workers are revolting. Well, well, fuck them. You know, just 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 shoot them down. We don't want to hear about this again. Um, and the ultimate way to stop hearing about it ever again is just fucking kill the people. You know? Right. It's it's an uh, awful way to respond, but it's the way a lot of systems respond because they're they're pathological. And what, also... what 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 beer is advocating here is the opposite of that. It's like, no, you sh- you should really fucking acknowledge the stimulus you've got and pay attention to it and let it through. Um, you can also be attentive in dysfunctional ways. Like you can be the Stasi, right? Like Paranoid. Just, yeah. Just, just yeah. create a hyper attentive surveillance network mm-hmm. throughout the entire country in, right. in the name of maintaining control. Which, um, which could become hallucination, right? Like that. There's there's just noise that you take to be significant um, in that kind of. There, there are there are psychological breakdowns of that kind where everything becomes significant. It's like, oh wow, did you did you see that signpost? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Oh, it's clearly a message from God. No, it's not. It's like it's it's too significant, right? Like there there are, there's danger to that. Um, there's also the kind that's of why like, you want an algodonic, or that, sorry, that's why you want a system like this in the first place. Is you yeah. just you just don't want to pay attention, uh, extreme attention to outliers that are of no real consequence. Mm-hmm. You have to learn. You have to train the filter mm-hmm. on how to respond appropriately to these things. It's just it's just interesting when we observe the breakdowns of these kinds of loops that give us some indication of what the healthy functioning should look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Tom, go ahead and uh, then we'll, we'll move on. I just wanted to agree with, I wanted to agree with Shane that the, uh, the workers in the factory are revolting. They're disgusting. <laughs> okay. Gotta got get those, those, <laughs> that, that Tom, Tom O'Brien humor in here. Okay. That's, that's, that's what you bring. Bring to the table here. All right, I got it. Okay. Uh, all right. The project manager for Cyberstride in Santiago was, as previously mentioned, Isaquino Benadoff at Ecom. He later took over the whole data management program, which was originally directed by a stig- distinguished Chilean professor, Hernan Santa Maria. In March 1972, Alan Dunsmuir was at Ecom. Uh, so again, uh, Dunsmuir uh, being uh, one of the consultants uh, from Arthur Anderson and Company. Um, <clears throat> uh, the temporary suite was duly working, and therefore Project Cybersyn could proceed on course. 
The first printout from the permanent suite, which was brought out in its first form a little later by John Brister, is dated the 11th of November, 1972, although it had been due by the end of August and therefore belongs to the epoch of this chapter. Computer people will sympathize with those named in this story. The challenge was very great. Moreover, nothing was known about the performance of the Harrison-Stevens techniques in advance. It was found that each time series had to be specifically tuned, and in May it was taking a week to deal with eight series because of the shortage of available computer time. Eventually, programs were written that could cope with the tuning issue. By July, the temporary suite was running without problems, and 30 indices were routinely being processed. In the meantime, the permanent suite was taking shape. The corner cutting in the temporary suite caused many problems, but as Dunsmuir had argued at the start, its direction was being shaped by experiences with the temporary suite. Uh, so I believe uh, this is a bit of a bit of a typo here. I think he's he's saying the direction of the overall project was being shaped by experiences with the temporary suite, uh, not that the temporary suite was being shaped by the temporary suite. Uh, although of course that does follow. Uh, in particular, changes were being made to deal with the need to generate algodonic signals. Uh, see Project Cybersyn. Uh, the problem of adequate computer time was solved by switching the work from the IBM 30, uh, 36050 uh, to the new Burroughs 3500. Uh, so um, I believe Jeremy uh, mentioned in the previous uh, uh, discussion we had about the problems they had with the IBM 306050, uh, uh, that essentially the... the the IBM personnel being pulled out of the country and the way that the computer was locked down caused uh, working with it to be an insurmountable problem, and they had to move to the Burroughs machine. Um, by the end of this epoch, something like 70% of the socio-industrial economy was operating the system, involving about 400 enterprises through CyberNet. Uh, so again, CyberNet was essentially the teletype system, that was wired across Chile. Um, and these were major components of Project Cybersyn, especially as far as Systems 321 were concerned at all levels of recursion. So then finally, we have this note on genesis and development. Uh, the fundamental technique that lies behind Cyberstride for the control of Systems 123 was first developed in the years 1949 to 53 for the control of steelworks production. Uh, and again, I think this should be read as it was developed by beer in the years 49 to 53, uh, because this, this, this tracks with his previous experience in the steel industry uh, doing OR work. Um, the, this application was prior to the availability of electronic computers, and the whole system was operated by hand using nomographs to compute standards desk calculating machines to compute indices, and visual control charts to provide the probability filters. A paper explaining how the system worked was presented to the Royal Statistical Society in 53, uh, entitled The Productivity Index in Active Service, while an uh, earlier paper entitled A Technique for Standardizing Mass Batteries of Control Charts uh, shows how visual statistical control procedures were standardized to facilitate filtering. 
And I assume this is like, you know, essentially you want to scale your visual indices so that they're meaningful and you're not getting like, oh, you know, compare A to B and B looks like it's four times as great as A. But that's actually just because your measure is misleading. Uh, that kind of problem. Um, uh, in subsequent years, the approach was generalized, following other applications, incorporating the use of computers. It was discussed in one form as the sketch for a cybernetic factory uh, in cybernetics and management, uh, chapter uh, 16 in 59, and in another form in chapter 13 15 of decision and control in 66. What the public, uh, by the publication uh, in 72 of the first edition of this book, uh, Brain of the Firm, the role of what became the cyber, cyber stride suite in a cybernetic management structure seemed evident. It is updated in terms of microcomputers in heart of the enterprise, or in the heart of enterprise. So um, uh, just want to clarify here again that CyberStride is essentially the system one, two, three uh, system. That's the project that CyberStride is involved with. Uh, and that was a part of CyberSyn, and it was made possible because of the networking of, uh, of, of the, the teletype machines that was done with CyberNet. Uh, so those are, those are the different projects that were going on here. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, it's it's um, I mean, uh, just to kind of riff on that point. Um, it's interesting that the the the, the named uh, components don't necessarily map cleanly to like one, two, three, four, and five. That there's um, many the, the, because the the systems one through five are functional things. They don't necessarily need to be embodied in separate bodies. They can be you can have a program that takes care of systems two through four or three or whatever, or two, two and three. Uh, maybe the maybe the cybernet thing would be the, the system one interface is whatever, but it seems you had, you had programs that were kind of taking care of a couple of different um, things at once. Um, it, it's kind of a side point here, but like when he's saying that like uh, back when he was doing steel works stuff, uh, they didn't have electronic computers and they had to calculate this stuff by hand. I think that might explain part of the enthusiasm for analog computing and for uh, like all, all because like hydraulic computing was kind of a thing for a very short while that like mm -hmm. you could use hydraulic systems to like basically like you know a, another analogy is that like a, a soap bubble will do um, topological problems faster than any computer will like it's like but you can just get hydraulics to calculate ratios for you um, I think that's probably the enthusiasm for that which is eclipsed by digital computing later. yeah uh, so Keynes uh, built a uh, national economic model with hydraulic computing mm -hmm. uh, uh, around the time of the, the of the Second World War. Uh, yeah. So uh, you know this is a uh, it it was a thing at the time. Uh, I mean, this also explains why in that period beer was a sp uh, experimenting with the the pond computer, mm -hmm. right? Using using a pond as a computer to deal with the <sighs> steel factory. Uh, that's Absolutely. this period here. Uh, mm -hmm. where it's like, yeah, it wasn't really clear whether using a pond or using a electronic computer, analog or no, uh, would be the better route to go with. Um, mm -hmm. I think it was hard for them to imagine, really, that like 
I mean, you just go, go and buy a MacBook today and it's like fucking incredible um, in comparison to the kind of stuff they had in the, the 70s. Um, maybe it was kind of hard to imagine the, the stuff taking off. Um, yeah, it was it was really like, you know, greenfield research. Like this is, this is pioneering stuff. Um, so we'll see what uh, what happens with Pond Tech uh, going forward. Uh, I don't know if I'm bullish bullish on Pontech. Um, <laughs> it smell awful. <laughs> well, ideally, it shouldn't smell awful, right? Like mm-hmm. it should smell yeah, like a well functioning ecosystem, which is yeah, you're right. You know, it just smells like a pod, which is it's mm-hmm. it's kind of boggy, but you know, it doesn't <laughs> doesn't it doesn't smell like a sewer. Uh, no, sure. Uh, uh, anyway. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's the section. I think we're gonna have to leave the Checo programs for next time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is gonna be dealing with the System Four stuff, uh, yes. um, and uh, it is uh, notably a part of the project that was uh, unfinished and not as successful as uh, Cyberstride. Cyberstride was pretty solid. Uh, Checo did not go very well. So uh, we'll we'll talk about that uh, next time. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for uh, participating today and uh, look forward to more of this interesting uh, computing and and cybernetics history uh, next next week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, everyone. See you all next week. Bye. 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 Bye